Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. I would say that I have normal teenage issues, but I take them to the next level. And they would say, we're going to put her in the bottom set. I spent a lot of time in the bottom set in physics. Throughout my life, I've I've got dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD, and autism. And so every single one of those differences has, um, has made me just different in the classroom. You're listening to the Elevate podcast, a series designed to explore ideas, teachings, and thoughts on empowering young girls and celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor. I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions of girls. My very first guest, Sienna Castellon, a young lady with autism, dyslexia, attention deficit disorder, and dyspraxia, has since the recording of this podcast also been named a young leader for the Sustainable Development Goals with the UN. She was 13 when she launched her own website to help others understand what it is like for teens living with learning challenges. She is a BBC teen hero for her work as an activist for neurodiversity, an author of the newly released Spectrum Girls Survival Guide, How to Grow Up, Awesome and Autistic, a maths and physics whiz, and also someone who has grown up trying to navigate a life at school as a very misunderstood girl and teen. Her journey is one full of extremely fascinating and eye-opening tales, of which some, especially for me as a former teacher, are devastatingly painful to digest. Yet, her resilience and willpower to take her own experiences and enlighten others so that they will not have to endure some of the same hardships as she did has left many, including myself, in awe of her admirable grit and strength. A very, very warm welcome to you, Sienna. What a year you've had. You've just released your new book, The Spectrum Girls Survival Guide, How to Grow Up Awesome and Autistic. Shall we start with talking about this? So initially when I started my website, that was a big step for me because throughout my school experience, teachers have been really, really critical of my writing. I grew up in a school system where they focused on spelling, not content in the earlier years. And so I would spend hours writing these creative writing stories and I would give them to my teacher and my teacher would just criticize them and mark the whole thing up with red pen and tell me it was terrible because I didn't have the right punctuation and I didn't have the right spelling. And it gave me a bit of a complex about writing and it made me very insecure. And every time I would write something, I would feel kind of embarrassed about it. And I wouldn't want to show people because I felt like they would read it and think that, you know, I I wasn't smart, that I wasn't well educated because I had spelling mistakes there. And then when I was approached by Jesse Kingsley Publishing to write a book, at first I was very hesitant because I, I felt like, you know, I've been told my whole life that my writing isn't great and I'm going to be writing a book. Like that's that's a really big step. But then I thought about it and I was really, really passionate about raising awareness for girls with autism because girls present slightly differently. And if I look at my own experience, I was diagnosed at 12 
which is considered rather late. Some people get diagnosed when they're two, three years old. And I went through my whole primary school experience not knowing I was autistic. And before I was diagnosed, I had really bad mental health because, you know, I would, I would be socially awkward. I would be weird. I would spend hours um, memorizing body language and scripting conversations the whole time knowing that everyone else around me didn't have to put in that effort. They weren't staying up till 2 a.m. Um, figuring out how they were going to say hi to the person who was sitting next to them in class. It came so naturally and it made me feel like I was different and like I was the only person in the world going through this. When I was diagnosed, my mental health just, it, it became so solid and so healthy and I stopped criticizing myself, you know, going down this path of destruction every time I messed something up and I found a community of people who were experiencing the same thing as me and I didn't feel as weird and different anymore. Yeah, of course. But gosh, it took till 12 before you got that sense of relief. Yeah, and I, I, I thought, thought for a really long time like that was pretty late and then I started hearing stories of women mm. who were getting diagnosed in their 40s. Yeah, And they were getting diagnosed because the diagnosis criteria is based off the male stereotype. You know, I was diagnosed at 12. If I had waited another five years, I don't know what would have happened. And you have these women who were in their 30s, 40s. And so I wanted to raise awareness for women with autism, try to get the diagnosis criteria changed, try to get resources out there for girls with autism, try to just start putting a platform to it so that you know, people can understand how girls with autism present and maybe start diagnosing more girls and flagging up when they think someone might be autistic. What an incredible journey you've been on already. I listen to you speak now and, and gosh, you're so articulate, Sienna. The theme that I felt kept coming through all of this, and I think you've just touched on it yourself, is that you were really misunderstood. You know, there was the bullying that you went through at school, all of this came at a great deal well, of, of pain for you, but also I think it shows how ignorant the, the people around us that we, we all are. And that ignorance of other people has, has led the people who are actually suffering with the conditions that, you know, that they have to be ashamed. And, and you just said you had mental health issues. Shame can bring on so many things. Would you agree that this is the ignorance of people is, is what's caused the biggest problem in your eyes, that if people were more aware and more educated about it, that you may have had a completely different experience. Yeah, I mean, I remember um, before I had started my neurodiversity work, before I started my first website, I began disclosing to people that I was autistic. And it was a very big deal for me. And it was me really putting myself out there and kind of being vulnerable in a way. When it first came up that I could be autistic, my mom decided to pay for me to get diagnosed. Because in the UK, we have the NHS and you could end up waiting like years to get a diagnosis. And she just thought, you know, your mental health is not doing too well. Let's just try to get, speed this along so that we can start getting the help you need. And so I got diagnosed by two specialists who really knew what they were doing. And they were top of their field in girls with autism. And they told me, like, this is what you have. We know for a certainty that you are autistic. We have diagnosed you. And so then to have teachers say, you're not autistic. And I had one teacher who actually got angry with me she said I know somebody who is autistic and you know they can't speak and you're here telling me that you're autistic and to put yourself in the same category as that person that's really hurtful and you're doing this for attention 
And I remember just, I was so horrified that she had reacted in that way. And I just wanted support. I just wanted, you know, to say that and then for them to be like, oh, okay, well, you know, when the classroom gets a bit loud, I know you're autistic now. I know you have a sensory processing disorder. We can make some adjustments. But instead, it was this very negative, um, almost hateful environment. Yeah. And it made me a bit insecure, but it also made me really want to change things. That was where yeah. I started my website. Is that where people who are seeking more information and want to learn about neurodiversity, is that, I mean, your website for everyone who's listening, Quantum Leap Mentoring is a great place to start. It's, it's the reason you started this website was, was to raise awareness for people. Would you suggest other places people who are trying to learn about neurodiversity can go to, to learn? Yeah, I mean, it really depends. If you've only got, you know, one or two neurodiversities, for instance, you know, if you're just dyslexic, then um, there are great resources for that. You have the um, Dyslexia Foundation. Um, you've got, you know, if you're dyspraxic, with the Dyspraxia Foundation. Um, I work alongside the ADHD Foundation. I also write for Special Needs Jungle, which is also a really great resource. I would recommend just going online and figuring out what works for you. I mean, I've had people recommend a website. I then go to the website. The website might be for autism. And while I'm there, I realize it's not dyslexia friendly. And so I would say just go on and um, see what works for you. Yeah, that's such an interesting point. I I think so after I did my teaching, I I retrained to be a special educational needs teacher. And obviously we'd moved away from blackboards to whiteboards. I don't know if you ever found the whiteboard and the light, the intensity of the light and the font that we use on a whiteboard can be extremely uh, challenging for kids with dyslexia to to have to focus on these bright lights and then these whiteboards that have all these flashing images and all sorts of different things and can make them quite tired because it takes so much effort to look at the board so they often you know slump down and and would get told off because it looked like they were sleeping in the lesson I became so hyper aware that teachers are always asking children to conform their behaviors from traditional I don't want to use the word old school but very very the expectations of what children in school should be like so sitting still not fidgeting, not looking outside the window because that was seen as someone who was daydreaming and completely not aware of what was happening at the lesson. And whilst for some children this might be true, for kids with neurodiversity, having beautiful handwriting and sitting still um, can't be an expectation. I would encourage teachers to allow children with dyspraxia to bounce a little bit while they were sitting um, because that allowed, from my research allowed the children to understand where their body was in space. Would you, did you have any of these experiences at school when you were growing up? And would you have a message for teachers today of what they could be doing in their classrooms to to be a bit more understanding? Throughout my life, I've, I've got dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD, and autism. And so every single one of those differences has, um, has made me just different in the classroom. Um, with my ADHD in particular, I can't focus for long periods of time unless I'm in hyperfocus, which doesn't happen regularly, especially in certain classes. I, like hyperfocus <laughs> tends to happen in math and physics, okay. but if I'm in like, English or history, it's just not happening. I remember I, um, I had this really supportive psychology teacher and I explained to her that I'd just been diagnosed with ADHD and I told her I can't focus for like 20 minutes straight 
if the task involves like a lot of writing and a lot of reading. And so what I'll do is I'll just zone out for five minutes. And then when I'm back ready to zone back in after those five minutes, I'll just do whatever I'm doing with a lot more focus and I'll be able to do it faster. But Sienna, that's a huge amount of awareness. Like the fact that you developed your own coping mechanism and understood that that you could do that is so rare in my experience from all the children I've worked with. The kids I work with don't even know they need that five minute timeout or they need a movement break or they need, I don't know, a quick bounce on the trampoline and then they're ready to come back and focus. I mean, how did you work this out for yourself? Well, when I was in school, yeah. I wouldn't be able to pay attention in class. It just couldn't happen. Yeah. And for a long time, I thought it was my autism. And I mm. thought it was just me getting overwhelmed by something and it not working out. I would go to school for whatever it is, eight hours. And then I would come home and I would teach myself every single thing that I had learned in class that day. And so during school hours, I just wouldn't engage. I'd just sit at the back of the class and teachers would say, you know, she never asks questions, she never interacts. And I'd just sit there and I'd be overwhelmed and I'd be daydreaming and I'd just be in my own world. And then I'd come home and I'd just study and I'd teach myself, you know, everything I needed to know. And I'll also come up with different strategies to teach myself everything. I knew what worked for me. And so I remember I was like memorizing my biology vocabulary and I found it so dreary to do this biology vocabulary. It's just so terrible. And I would like bounce around my room while doing it. And I would go to the park and I would walk around and people would think I was crazy because I'm sitting there like reciting the different parts of a cell while just pacing up and down. Because what happens is if you're sitting there and you're focusing on not making yourself bounce, or if you're focusing on not daydreaming, you're distracting yourself, but just in a different way. Yeah. If you're bouncing while doing something, you're no longer focusing on stopping yourself from bouncing. You're just able to focus on the task at hand. Yeah. And I'm so much more productive. And so when I explained this to my teacher, I was like, look, I'm going to zone out for five minutes and you're going to see me like doing all this, not being productive. But then the 15 minutes when I'm there, it's going to be really quality paying attention, really quality getting stuff done. I, I wish I, I was able to offer some of these insights in some of my training to other teachers, but it's, I feel like that's why I've started Elevate RA, which is I really want to empower young girls. I really want them to feel like superheroes. And listening to you, I feel like you've got so many superpowers. And what the, the, the language I use in my teaching, and I always have done, is always about teaching children that your unique differences are your superpowers. And that's exactly what you need to remember, you know, about being different rather than feeling worried or ashamed. And yet, in your case, I feel that your teachers let you down. I don't know if you agree with this or not. I feel... Your superpowers weren't celebrated. In fact, you were asked to mask them or pretend like they didn't exist and you had to find ways around them, which, well, it breaks my heart, first of all. If you could give some advice to young girls who, who really want to, you know, embrace their differences, what would you say to them today? I would say um, that there are always going to be just like toxic people in your life people who don't support you, people who maybe have their own ideas of autism and try to limit you and kind of impose those beliefs on you. And I would say you just got to ignore them, cut them out of your life, and you've got to try to create the most positive, supportive environment that you can. I've always believed the things I've believed. You know, I remember being 14. Um, I'd started my first website and I believed autism was a superpower. And 
I knew all the benefits that autism gave me and I knew that autism made me who I am. You know, if I weren't autistic, I'd be a completely different person. Literally, like I have sensory processing disorder. So I see things brighter and I hear things as louder than they are. And it just, it changes everything. And it changes the way, you know, I respond to things and it makes me who I am. But when I had toxic people in my life, teachers who were awful to me, students who bullied me, um, people in my family who weren't supportive, knowing all of the positives of my autism, I was still self-conscious about my autism. I was, I still had all these mental health problems. And I later realized, you know, there's no point in just having people in your life who are going to drag you down and going to be negative. Yeah. And so you've just got to create your own little group of superheroes around you so that you can just be empowered and positive. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously great when as you get older to 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 understand how you can create your little group and and your people that champion you because that's that's what elevate is about it's about championing girls who feel you know a bit low on themselves or vulnerable in some way but yet i still feel that if you're quite young changing schools may not be an option running away from your teachers can't be an option cutting them out of your life is, is quite a challenging thing for young girls to do um would you have some ways of suggesting, some practical suggestions that we could give to teachers to make reasonable adjustments for these young girls and young boys even, you know, all children who are going through such an effortful time to try and make the school day a bit more pleasant for themselves? I would say to teachers that you've got to listen to your students. If you line up a hundred people who are dyslexic, they're all going to tell you a very similar story about their dyslexia. They're all going to say, you know, um, it affects my spelling and it affects my reading. No one's going to have a completely radical different perspective on their dyslexia. Everyone's going to have the same thing. If you line up 100 people with autism, they're all going to have completely different experiences and autism is going to affect their lives in completely different ways. Mm-hmm. And if you were to ask me, I would say, you know, I'm super sensitive to bright lights and loud sounds. And then my sister, who's also autistic, would stand next to me and would be like, oh, I'm not sensitive to any of that. And I've had teachers along the way not listen to the advice that I was giving them and not listening to, um, you know, the requests that I had for adjustments for my autism and instead imposing adjustments that had worked previously with different autistic people. Like I had one teacher who had experience with one autistic individual and just thought this is how all autistic people perceive the world. And so then when I came to her and I said, you know, this is something I'm struggling with. She was like, oh, well, the other autistic person didn't. So I'm just going to give you the adjustments that worked for him. That's quite shocking. I mean, you say you have a sister younger or older? Uh, Younger. She just turned 14. Is life easier for her at 14 than it was for you at 14? Definitely. Uh, We have learned a lot. Um, We as in my my mother and I have learned a lot along the way um, just through me going through the school experience. My mother's a lawyer. And at the beginning, when I was being bullied and when I was having difficulties with um, not getting reasonable adjustments, we would go in and and she would be very calm and collected and she would be like, you know, these are the adjustments she needs. And she would try to appeal them to them on an emotional level and be like, look, my daughter has a lot of anxiety and she's not going to have that same amount of anxiety if you make these adjustments. Now with my sister, she goes in and she's like, you are legally required to give reasonable adjustments. And if you do not, I will sue you. I mean, it's a shame you've got to use law as a way to get your point across rather than people just being compassionate and trying to understand. I mean, I think one of the things I 
I, I listened to on your earlier podcast was even the idea that your headmistress would make you shake hands with you every morning and give you eye contact. And now that is something definitely we used to do at the schools that my children went to as well. Tell me how, when you have autism, to me, it's very obvious why that is just a terrible expectation of a child. But what, what can you explain to teachers and headmistresses and masters who still have this expectation of children? I don't know, it, was, it was so like just stressful, but I wasn't able to convey it. Yeah. Because when my mom would say, why do you have all this anxiety about like looking her in the eye and shaking her hand? I couldn't put that into words. I couldn't explain to her because it didn't seem rational. Yeah. It didn't seem like something I could properly convey. And even to this day, I don't know why I get so anxious about eye contact. Mm. Um, but it's something that happens. And it's part of my experience. And one of like, your coping strategies I thought was fantastic. Everyone else thought you had great eye contact. But you came up with a little trick of looking just beyond the eyes. I'm like in the middle on their eyebrows. And I would just, like just, just close enough to the eyes that they think I'm looking in the eyes. But I'm not having to do that. Awful. But I mean, I feel like advice for teachers. And this isn't just for autistic students. It's just students in general. Yes. Don't make your children feel really uncomfortable. Like yeah. if a child is very anxious about you making them do something, you probably shouldn't be forcing them to do it. The expectations we have of our children, I think, they're pretty pretty high on, on, on a day-to-day basis. And I think the effort that you children put in to meet those expectations is phenomenal, really. I, I, I really think that. Sports, for example, can be quite... Sports day can be quite a daunting experience for kids who struggle with loud noises and chaos. And they can be pretty challenging, you know. I wonder if teachers had more understanding of this because I have memories of children having meltdowns on sports fields or days of productions, not wanting to learn their lines, not wanting to come into their play with with the costume that was given to them. It's a massive struggle. No, I mean, sports day in particular, I just remember it being awful. I was um, I was very tall when I was younger. Now I'm about 178 centimetres. My thing is I was that height when I was like 13, 14. And so I haven't grown a lot in those like five years. Um, and I was always the tallest in the class. And I remember when I was doing sports, teachers had this idea that I was going to be really good at sport because of my height. Mm. And teachers would say, we're going to put you in the top set in netball. We're going to put you in the top set. And I remember um, we did this thing where we were like jumping over a pole. They were like, you're going to be so good at this. Because, you know, I was like twice the height of everyone else. And they were like, you can just step over it. And everyone else has to like do this massive leap. And it was, it was always a disaster. And I always felt like I was disappointing somebody and I would get frustrated in myself. And then when sport became very competitive... And, you know, there were people in my class who wanted to get sports scholarships and people who, you know, wanted to, I remember there was someone who wanted to do like professional hockey or something. And they would get very upset with me when I would mess up and when I would trip over something or when I wouldn't catch the ball if we were doing netball. And I started just getting bullied for it. You're listening to the Elevate podcast. Conversations with me, Ramita Anand where we share stories and exchange ideas on how we can lift our girls. I think the stereotypes that we have of children with autism, those checklists that people have in their brains about A, it's got to be a male, B, it's got to be someone who just doesn't have eye contact or someone who's nonverbal and can't speak. What are the stereotypes that you think we need to break? Say just 
there are so many stereotypes out there, like um, especially around autism, um, mm. around ADHD, there's some really harmful ones. Mm. Um, I've got inattentive ADHD, mm. which sometimes borders on hyperactivity ADHD. There are times when I need to bounce around, but when I first got diagnosed, I was told ADHD doesn't exist. It's rich or middle-class parents being embarrassed about their badly behaved children. I'm not badly behaved. Like, if, like in my school, I've, I'm always known as the person who like, follows all the rules and I'm always like never gotten in trouble. I mean, I would, I would I'd forget stuff uh, all the time because of my dyspraxia. But apart from that, like I wasn't a troublemaker. Mm. And, and the teacher was like, yeah, it's just um, it's just like middle-class parents being embarrassed. And I think that she was looking at the stereotype of young boys just bouncing around and being super energized and shouting and being loud and you know like these four or five year old boys and she was just saying oh like that is kind of what I perceive ADHD to be and that's just parents not knowing how to raise their kids and so um you know being embarrassed about it and just giving them a diagnosis like I had teachers tell my mom she cannot be dyslexic because she can read and they said it in a very definitive way. And my mom was like, okay, well, yes. if you're so confident about it, then you are right because you're a teacher and I don't know a lot. My mom wasn't, my mom's completely neurotypical. And so she, um, she had a dyslexic brother, but, but um, my uncle is very um, dyslexic. He, he still struggles to read now. And so she had a different idea of what dyslexia was. Mm-hmm. And so when a teacher said to her, she cannot be dyslexic in a very definitive, clear, confident way. She was like, oh, okay. It was the fact that your, the teacher gave your mom such confidence based on a stereotypical view of what dyslexia is meant to be. And that teacher must have known that they don't, they're not an expert. Mm. Like if, if, you're, if you believe that dyslexia means you cannot read, then you obviously <laughs> don't know a lot about dyslexia and you probably haven't read a lot about it and haven't done your research. And so don't say really definitive stuff. And, and teachers have done that throughout my life. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have lots of parents are ignorant. I, I, I've met with lots of parents who've said, but he can he knows the difference between a B and a D. He's not dyslexic. You know, I've had that in parent teacher interviews. And, and I'm thinking, goodness, is that all you think dyslexia is about? It's just conversing your letters. And, and where these traits of, of dyslexia have come to people's mind or autism have come to mind and, and ADHD is another great one because obviously inattentive um, attention disorder is as difficult and challenging for ch- children as the, as the hyper one but it gets picked up differently and they aren't looked at as the kids that daydream. I know and especially with um, my ADHD getting diagnosed with that one was a bit um I have different stories for how I got diagnosed with all my differences, but okay. <laughs> it was one that was, it was slightly embarrassing, not because I was getting diagnosed with ADHD, but because I, I hadn't caught it earlier. I was 15. I'd spent two years in like really involved in the neurodiversity movement and, you know, constantly writing articles and putting myself out there and researching all these um, learning differences. And I hadn't flagged it in myself. And that was partly because of comorbidity. Um, I would focus, I would have hyper-focus around physics and math. And then with other subjects, I just couldn't pay attention. Mm. And I thought that was because it wasn't appealing to my autism side of things. And I thought my autism gave me that hyper-focus. And, um, and it meant that I didn't get diagnosed with ADHD for, for, um, until later in my life. Goodness me. I mean, teen girls are at such a stage of confusion anyway. It's such a tricky time. 
of your development. Your hormones are all over the place. You're changing physically. The challenges that you have during those years with school only make it worse. Do you have any advice in your book for girls that are going through that teenage difficulty of just being a teen girl, like just understanding the world around them? I would say that I have normal teenage issues, but I take them to the next level. Like that's how I would describe myself. You know, like normal teenagers, they have a bit of anxiety about, you know, friendships and maintaining friendships. And then I have that same anxiety, but it's just, you know, if normal people have it here, I've got it up there. I've got all the social anxiety. I'm trying to memorize all these scripts, trying to keep on top of everything. And so I talk about, you know, relationships um, and dating. That's um, a topic in my book. Okay. um, I talk because, you know, I was, I personally don't have experience in that, but I was going online and I was reading a lot about it. And people are just very... um, people can be pretty cruel sometimes. And I, I have experienced in that just from um, being bullied myself. But I was reading stories of boys who would just take advantage of these autistic girls and they would lie to them. And um, autistic girls generally um, are less likely to pick up on when you're lying. I've experienced that myself. And so the girls end up kind of being taken advantage of in these relationships and thinking like, oh my God, he loves me because he spent, you know, an hour with me in his lunch break and having these ideas. And so I, I talk about that in my book and how to just, you know, keep yourself safe and not, not be taken advantage of. Gosh, that's so important. I mean, even for girls that are not autistic, that's quite a scary thing. If Sienna, the teenage girl, was to use Instagram, Snapchat, or whatever the other apps are at the moment for teen girls, and what you think would be good advice to give girls who might already struggle with some mental health? I think that I really struggle with one-on-one conversation and maintaining body language and thinking about my tone of voice and eye contact. And when I'm focusing on all these different things and then the noise that's in the background and the sensory issues that I'm having, it's hard to be myself and connect with people Mm -hmm. um, because I've got all these other things that I'm I'm focusing on. But when I'm able to text somebody, um, I don't have all those. I'm not worrying about my body language. I'm just doing whatever I'm doing and I'm able to communicate just through text. And it's a it's a safer way to um, you know I I would I told a lot of people about my autism through text, um, okay. so that you know I'm because when you're putting yourself out there and you're vulnerable and you're already stressed out, it's something that's particularly difficult to do in person. And so I would say you know utilizing um, text messaging platforms can be really positive and it can also be great if you can get across your sense of humor and get across who you are. Um, to somebody in text so that then when you meet them in person and maybe you're a bit more awkward they know to just that you can be really fun and that you can be a really great friend but you're just having maybe a social issue at the moment right did you ever experience I know you experienced a lot and that's very sad that you did and very um, disappointing that we, we didn't do more about the bullying at school what about online bullying did you have to experience any of that I mean, every bullying story is different. I experienced online bullying um, when I was was being bullied. I didn't really have personal, I didn't have any personal um, social media. I just had my QL mentoring and on my work social media, I wasn't friends with anybody from school. I was just friends from people in the industry. 
And so when I was bullied online, they didn't target me through my QL mentoring. Instead, they got my personal email and they signed me up for a funeral home. Um, I was suicidal at the time because I was being bullied in person and I was just having a really difficult time. And they were like, well, when you kill yourself, here are some funeral home vouchers and here are some funeral home like recommendations that we're sending to you. And so I woke up one morning and there were like 20 different funeral homes that they'd that they forwarded my information to and like different caskets. It was so like morbid and so depressing. I couldn't track down who had done it. Resilience is one of the five superpowers that I, I want to work on with the children I, I teach and mentor. Talk me through how you became such a resilient young lady and how can, how one can go from being at such a low place like you have been to where you are today. How, how did that resilience sort of spark in you? Is there somebody that helped you with it? Was it a moment in time? Was it a journey that you were on? I would, I would say that throughout my life, my mom and I have kind of had a different insight to who I am. So um, I'm, I'm gifted. Um, academically and my mom knew that from a young age she I I don't know I, I was really into dinosaurs at a level that I think that she knew if she had known what autism was back then she would have known it was a special interest but I was into it at a point and and she um she took me to a child psychiatrist and psychologist I don't, I'm not sure which one it was and um I, I they said that I had a really like high IQ and then when I went to school teachers would say she's stupid because she can't spell. And they would use that, that, that language to describe me. And they would say, we're going to put her in the bottom set. And, and right now, um, I have a place to study um, material science at Imperial College. Oh, and, I went um, to Imperial. I'm very excited for you. <laughs> it's a really good like, university. And I, I spent a lot of time in the bottom set in physics and bottom set in math. And I always had this idea that I was smart and I always and throughout my life my mom and I have just had different we have we've had to kind of convince people of something that we know to be true teachers would say she's really lazy because she's forgetting her books and I didn't know I was dyspraxic but I knew I wasn't lazy and so my mom and I are trying to show this different side of me to my teachers when they just have this idea that I'm this weirdo who's in isolation and who's really lazy and who's really stupid and they just had this idea of me that like if you describe that to someone who knew me personally would be like that's absolutely not what Sienna is and so there my resilience kind of came from trying to show people who I am and when I wrote my book um, part of it was just to show all those teachers who said that I couldn't write um, well, now I have a best-selling book, and I yeah. wrote it when I was seventeen. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, how's that? Yeah, no doubt there couldn't be a better way to get a message back to teachers that need to hear this from their students. Really, I think um, one of the questions I had for you, actually, and you've answered, is if you could give any of your teachers a message today, what would it be? But I think you've pretty much said it all, haven't you? That listening to your inner voice and being true to yourself has been what proved this to you. But also I feel like you were lucky enough to have your mum, who sounds like an absolutely dream, you know, in terms of as awful for mothers to be. She was a person that lifted you. And I was lucky enough um, to have a mum that I felt gave me the confidence I needed when I was young as well. 
Some of us don't have those people in our lives, or if we do, they aren't present or they've got other challenges that keep them maybe not as in tune with their children or just they don't have the understanding to help their children. And they rely on teachers. That's, that's the difficulty in all of this is that sometimes we, we trust the teachers and we more we trust our instincts. And having been in the school system and understanding that so, so well, I think... Um, it's important for people to have role models like you and, and have people that elevate them, to, to use my own sort of lingo, um, because I do think that we, we need to lift our girls and we need to lift our children to, to feel empowered. Otherwise, you're just stuck on plan A, aren't you? You're just stuck in a world where people are putting you in bottom sets. No, I mean, it's just when I, when I sit and I, I think about all the stuff that I've gone through throughout my school experience, I've had people tell me you should write a second book and you should write it about all the school stuff that you've been through and all the things people have told you along the way. Is that in the pipeline, Sienna? I mean, I'm not, I'm not like, I thought about it, but I just, I don't know who would read it. And, and it's a lot of the same stuff. Like that's the thing. A lot of it is incredibly repetitive. I had teachers um, in different parts of the country who had no contact with each other say the exact same negative thing about me. Um, the fact that I was lazy because I would forget stuff, that came up like five or six different times. Tell me about a group of positive people around you outside of school then. Did you join clubs or do extracurricular activities? Did you make friendships that were meaningful or were you sort of so busy trying to work it all out when you got back from school that you didn't get to engage in that part of growing up? I do not have many friends in the typical sense. My mom one time explained it really well. Okay. She said that she was at a coffee morning one day and with all the different parents who were in my year and they all had children of the same age as me and they were saying, oh, you know, I'm having a really awful time. Like my, my cleaning lady cancelled on me. Oh, I'm having such a terrible day. My child like spilled milk on the carpet. And then my mom was there and she didn't say it, but in her head she was like, I'm having a really terrible day because my seven-year-old had a panic attack and didn't want to go to school. And my seven-year-old couldn't sleep and she cried all night because she was being bullied. And my mom just had very different problems than everyone else who had kids in my year. And she felt like she couldn't say and like kill the mood and be like, oh yeah, you know, yeah. you're having a bad day because you're, you know, part of your carpet got ruined. I'm having a bad day because like my kid's mental health is just awful and I don't know what to do about it. And, you know, I don't know why she feels the way she does because she didn't know about autism back then. And I don't know how to help her. And this is just so stressful. This is consuming my life. Um, and so she would just kind of sit there and nod along and just kind of go with it. And when she explained that to me, I realized that I felt the exact same way at school. Like I, I had my peers who would talk about their problems and things that were going on in their life. And they would say, oh, you know, I had a crush on this boy. And I remember last night I, I read an article about how to talk to boys. And I, I can't believe I did that. That's so, that's so crazy that I did that. I'm really, I really like him. And then I'm there. I read a whole book on how to interact with people just in general. And I read a whole book on how to interact with adults as well. And I have a whole collection in my library of that. But I knew that if I said that, 
I would sound crazy. And so I just keep it to myself. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And I realized that I did that more and more. And I did a lot of um, compromising and doing things that I really didn't want to do. Um, For instance, I really enjoy planning. And I enjoy um, knowing in advance when things are happening. And a lot of my friends that I had were a lot more spontaneous. And they'd just be like, let's go to the park. Let's take the tube and go to the park. And I'm like, you cannot spring the tube on me. That takes a whole day of preparation. That brings me on to like another superpower that I'm trying to talk to girls about, which is empathy. And I feel the fact that you were trying to be more empathetic with the people around you than the people around you who should be, even with your mum, the fact that she didn't share what she was actually feeling. And I've been there as well at probably a very similar type of coffee morning. I can almost envision myself having the same thought bubble that your mum had that we obviously didn't have the belief that other people would listen to our stories and have any empathy for us or you for example if you were to explain the actual challenges that were going through your brain could somebody actually take a pause and think right I need to do a reality check here let me read the room and have a bit more empathy for somebody else who's having a lot tougher day than I am but I really feel it's an important skill for us to have both and it should start young with young girls learning to listen and take perspective from other people but unless they're taught this how how are we going to raise them to be more empathetic? Um, I would say you just have to listen to people and you have to ask questions. Um, I remember I had a really big issue with um, planning and changing in schedule. It would stress me out if things suddenly changed. Yeah. And I remember for a long time, my mom was like, that's just a thing Sienna does. It's something that she does that's very eccentric. We just have to go along with it. <laughs> and she would, she would just, she would entertain it and she... But she didn't understand why I did it. Mm. And um, she would go along with it, but she would kind of just roll her eyes and be like, this is a bit bit annoying to have to do. And then one day she asked me, like, do you know why you do that? And I said to her, well, look, um, every night before I go to bed, I walk myself through the day I'm going to have when I wake up in the morning. I'll plan everything out. And then in the morning, I will prepare myself. And that morning I will make sure, you know, to limit the anxiety I have at the beginning of the day if I know that I'm going to have an anxious end of the day. And I'll plan everything out so that I don't have a panic attack because that's the end goal, to just get through the day without having like extreme anxiety. And it seems really irrational, but when I explained it to my mom in that way and just, you know, how every single event, it takes so much more planning and so much more thinking to get there. I mean, there are moments where, you know, I spend a lot of time, you know, going to events by myself and I would, you know, I would go to work by myself and my mom wouldn't be with me. And there were moments there when I was really afraid that I would have a panic attack and wouldn't be able to talk to people and just be in this environment where I'd have no idea what to do and nobody to help me and no one to advocate for me and no one there. It would give me a lot of anxiety. One time I was at an event. It was an event for autistic individuals and people who were neurodiverse. Um, But they decided that they were going to have dry ice and flashing lights and a really loud microphone and a comedian whose skit was that he shouted into the microphone and then really loud music and put a table of autistic people right next to the speakers. It it wasn't very well thought through, but... um, I just got so much anxiety from it and I was outside like about to have a panic attack because I didn't know what to do. I knew I was winning an award and I didn't want to appear ungrateful by just leaving. 
And somebody came out and was like, I'm really sorry. I, I know that you probably have a lot of anxiety from what's going on inside. And I completely understand why that would happen. I'm going to go talk to someone who's managing this event on your behalf. And so I stayed outside of the event. And then when, um, when I was announced to come collect my award, this person came and said, okay, just go inside now and collect your award. And I got my award and then I left. And that person who was there for me, complete stranger, um, but they were so kind and they really changed the way that event went. And I just wish there were more people like that who are just like kind and who are empathetic. I mean, you don't have to be an expert in autism or an expert in a, in a learning difference to just help people out. That's wonderful. It's wonderful. We need more and more examples of people doing kind things. And I think your hashtag always be kind is a fantastic one to use in your campaigns. It's definitely one that I'm going to be using throughout my work. You are a motivational speaker. You're an inspiring woman of such courage. And you have a voice, I think, for so many girls that just possibly don't have a voice. You've got an impressive armor and your motivation is so admirable, Sienna. I'm, so, I'm just so proud of the work that you do. I feel so much affection for you. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, for closing words, I'll probably say, um, similar to what, to what you said, you just have to always be kind. Um, you've got to be considerate of those around you and, um, you know, try to help anybody who you think is, you know, struggling in social situations. I mean, I've been there. I've been in situations where I have no one to sit with at lunch and, you know, no one to, to talk to. And there have been a few people in my life who have kind of shown me a lot of kindness and it really goes a long way. And, you know, I can't remember most of the names of the teachers who were awful to me, but I can remember the names of people who, who stood up for me and were, were kind to me in those times. And so try to be that person for people around you. You are such a wonderful role model for so many young girls, Sienna. So thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for spending the time with me today. Um, and allowing me to get to know you a little bit more and hear more about the things that you've had to go through. I hope it shed, it'll shed light on adults, educators, teachers, children, parents. I think we all need to hear the messages that you are giving us. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. It was really great to talk to you. What a remarkable young lady Sienna really is. That's left me feeling very inspired. A very big shout out to our sound engineer, Duncan McPherson, for helping me bring this to you all. Please be sure to share, rate and review the podcast, helping us reach more listeners and spread awareness. The Elevate Podcast. That's it for now. Until next time, speak to you soon.